there was a, a time in my life, friends, when my three brothers and both of my parents forbade me. They would not allow me to do something that brought me much joy. They did not let me watch infomercials. Is anyone else here with me? You see the Shazam or boom and the stain is gone and you're like, I want some of that. <laughs> or um, what were some of the other examples? I better look. Uh, the inverted cooker that like boils water in 25 seconds. Like, I need that. Or my personal favorite, we got a picture. Does anyone remember this? Who has, <laughs> who's got a Snuggie? I'll be honest with a few of you who raised your hand. There are times where I'm like reading a book or sipping a coffee, and I'm like, golly, this part of my arm is just chilly, and I wish I had a Snuggie right now. <laughs> yeah, they were protecting me, I must admit, from making a brash decision of buying something I would never use. <laughs> right? We're, we're all prone to this, aren't we? Um, how many, I just had to go here, how many Mac bid lovers are in the house today? If you know, you know. Right, it's the liquidator just over at the Crown Center with the online auctions where you end up buying stuff just because um, it's there. Like this stack, you probably can't see it, but this stack of damaged TVs <laughs> with a retail value of 1200 bucks, but it's only 78, so you know, you may as well bid on it. Or, um, this next Rebecca found this next one um, two dollars for a, a uh, $800 printer. Damage, the printer will not power on. <laughs> it's two bucks, so why not? <laughs> Anyhow, that, um, yeah, you can get in trouble. I'm not even going to go down the City Mission Warehouse sale or the 50% off days. You know, like once you're there and you're carrying around the garbage bag, we've gone too far. You see, we all have stuff that we just don't use. Right? We have the gym membership, which um, Ricky and Daniel finally like, twisted my arm a few weeks ago to get one. And I've been there twice. <laughs> but we all have things we don't need. Right? And we all have things that we purpose to use but never do use. And in today's text, we encounter something just like that. So with that, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 8 as we continue to work our way through the gospel of Luke. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you, you're welcome to take one of those uh, black, I think they're black, Bibles in front of the chair, um, under the chair in front of you. It's on page 812. And um, as we open up the Word, by the way, I'm just so encouraged that our little ones brought in and, and were committed to getting this book in the hands of children in their mother tongue or in their own language all over the world, aren't you? Oh, there was one missiologist, um, which is just someone who studies missions, who said that the best missionary is the word of God in someone's own language. It doesn't need a break. It doesn't need to go on furlough. And it's the word of God itself. Isn't that beautiful? And so as we turn our attention to his word, and as we think of those nearly 300 Bibles, um, that are going out across this globe, let's just pray one more time. Lord, this morning we are encouraged that little ones have brought in more pennies than seemingly we could count, um, but Lord, that your word is going out all across this globe. Literally, the Bible 
is being printed in many different languages. And so as our little ones have demonstrated to us the importance of, of getting your word in the hands of people all over this world, Lord, we pray that we too will be committed to your gospel over this whole earth. And Lord, we pray that as those 280 Bibles go, that the gospel, the message of Christ, will be well received. Lord, we know that your word will not return unto you void, but that it goes out to accomplish that which you intend for it to accomplish. And so this morning, in our own hearts and minds, we pray that we will indeed hear that your word will accomplish exactly what you intend for it to accomplish in our hearts and in our lives this morning. And in the name of Jesus, we all pray. So this is Luke 8. We're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to continue on down to verse 25. So Luke 8, 16 to 25. Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? You know, at first glance, it seems like these three accounts, if you will, are squished together uh, as if there's no obvious or central theme. Is that me um, or something else? Move the pulpit mic. Okay. Use the pulpit mic. I'm going to use the pulpit mic. At first glance, we're saying that these three don't seem to be, they seem like they just don't go together as if there's no central theme. But I think that God might have something else here in mind. Right? Do you remember, let's just think back to the past two weeks briefly, the emphasis on the parables, the purpose of the parable is Jesus kind of, um, he bottom-lined it with us. He who has ears, let him hear. And we see that that is continuing here through this narrative. We learned how Jesus described the person, 
the, the person of the good soil, as the one who hears the word and does it, right? Who, I better just read it. <laughs> Hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. See, those of the good soil hear the word, they hold fast to it, they apply it to their lives, right? And we have to look back, friends, because this parable of the lamp cannot be seen in isolation. It's got to be seen in the context as Jesus was teaching about the purpose of the parables and the parable of the sower. And so when we look at Jesus, the bottom line he's trying to drive home is, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's look at this lamp. The primary point that Jesus is making about the lamp, the article, if you will, is one of utility, right? He says, no one lights a lamp and then covers it up. You're crazy. In a similar way, you don't buy like a, a, a kitchen, a stove, not a stove, the thing you put on a stove, what's that? <laughs> a skillet. And you don't put it on a stove. <laughs> I'm in trouble. And you, and you don't put it on a stove, empty, turn on the stove. No, that's ridiculous. You don't go and get a gym membership to sit in the lobby, watch people work out, and chew on pizza. It's absolutely bonkers. And that's the point that Jesus is making. There's one of utility. You don't light a lamp and then cover it. Just like the parable of the sower, it's possible that many people hear the word of God, maybe even see the light of the illumination of Christ. But for that very word not to enter in, to have no bearing on our lives, and to have no change. Some may, of us may hear the gospel time and time and time again, but fail to glorify God. Right? How many times have we done that in our own lives? Right? How many folks claim the title of Christian? Oftentimes, we may see it as the quiet, stoic Christian or quiet, stoic person who says that faith is a matter of, is a private matter or one of personal convictions only. I think that's, in a sense, is what Jesus is starting to get his finger on here this morning, isn't it? If the lamp doesn't fulfill its purpose, it's useless. In fact, you could argue, I think, that the lamp was never lit in the first place. Saying, we, we're beating this drum all the time here, I think. At least I feel like. Saying you're a Christian isn't enough. We say professing faith in Jesus is not the same as possessing faith in Jesus. But conversely, we see that the one who bears the light, what they really do is it's on the lamp, they put the lamp on the stand for all to see because that's just what a lamp was designed to do, isn't it? When you light a lamp, it's just going to let out the light. It's the natural inclination, if you will, of a lamp. Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John, that, our, that the true light was coming into the world, right? and that it's to be put out there for all to see, because it's the natural inclination that this is the question is it the natural inclination of my life and of your life for his light to shine? And if not, maybe we need to ask the question has that lamp 
ever been lit in the first place. Because Jesus follows up in verse 17 with something rather fascinating. He says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. See, there's no secrets in the world. There's certainly no secrets in the kingdom of God. And that one day, everything will indeed come to light. Your righteous acts by the righteousness of Christ will come to light. Our lying will come to light. Our faking, you can't fake it to make it, can we? Here in the Christian faith. Our faking will come to light because the day will reveal it. It is entirely possible, Christian, or person, I should say, in this whole Christian thing for us to be fooling our neighbors, for us to be fooling our friends, for us to be fooling students, for you to be fooling your parents, spouse, pastors, you name it. It's possible even that we are fooling ourselves, but we're not fooling God, nor can we ever. Two quick scripture verses. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 2. On that day, speaking of the day in the future to come, according to my gospel, Paul writes, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Has the lamp of your life been lit? If so, it's not hidden. It can't be hidden, for no one lights a lamp and puts it under a jar. So as we start to think, but how do we apply these two verses to our life? Don't you just love when, when Jesus himself tells you how to do just that? Verse 18, Jesus tells us, take care then how you hear. You see, the emphasis is on the how of hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, put into practice what you hear. And it goes on to say, this is so interesting, more will be given. Right? The one who has will get more. The one who does not will lose what he thinks he has. It's like, that's really backwards, it seems like, doesn't it? But you're all familiar with this concept, aren't you? You don't like hand a butcher knife to uh, a six-year-old. You start them off with a butter knife, right? And once you demonstrate responsibility, once you can demonstrate you know how to use it, and you're growing into that use, it's just the way that the Christian faith was made, the way that the spiritual life works. As you demonstrate, as you grow in a knowledge of holiness, as you grow in faithfulness and obedience, what just naturally happens? You just grow, and more will be given, is what Jesus is saying here. But the second half of this is just so fascinating. The one who has not even what he catch that word, thinks he has, will be taken away. What kind of person could Jesus be talking about here? One who thinks he has. He's probably not talking about an atheist. He's talking about someone who thinks he has. Isn't that jarring? There is a category of people who think they have the light, 
who think that we hear, but our lights or the lamp hasn't really been lit in the first place. Why? Because the proof is that it's on display, just like a lamp was designed to do. It wasn't theirs to begin with anyway. And so we turn to the quick moment of application. Do you possess the light? Each of us ought to think and examine ourselves in that way. Why? Because Jesus is telling them us, take care how you hear. It's like, I don't even know how you're supposed to do that. But it's this. Maybe right now is, let's just take a brief moment in each of our chairs and say, Lord, we're hearing the word this morning. Each of us is hearing the word. We definitely sang it. Lord, do I believe what I'm hearing? And am I obeying? Maybe just take a moment, brief moment now and say, Lord, help me as I hear to believe and obey. Lord, because you taught us to take care how we hear. And it's at this moment that interruption comes into play. And some of you, you know what this interruption's like. You know, it's like a knock comes at the door and you're in the middle of this big moment and someone says, your mom's here. Oh my. What's she want now? (laughs) Jesus' mother and his brothers want to see him. Now, we read that there's a big crowd and they weren't able to get to him. And so they send a messenger. We don't know why exactly. We, we could guess. Maybe it's because so many people were calling him crazy. Maybe they just wanted to live a quieter life. Who knows? But in a sense, still what a, a bold move, move nonetheless. Which is interesting that in the middle of this pivotal teaching about taking care how you hear, Jesus's family shows up. Which begs the question, was this an accidental interruption? Was it some sort of um, situation to which God had to reactively engage? Or did God in his sovereign purpose seek to highlight something, something much bigger, even something about hearing the word of God? See, this sets up a great opportunity for Jesus, for God himself incarnate, to begin to teach us something about his family. Note his response. Jesus says in verse 20, excuse me, 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You see how he's driving an exclamation point home on the hearing and on the doing? Jesus is not dishonoring his physical mother and brothers, but rather he's drawing our eyes to something deeper and to something richer. Those who hear the word of God and who do it, Jesus says, are my mother and my brothers. There's something stronger than bloodlines. Elsewhere in scriptures, we'll get to this in a few chapters in Luke, Jesus himself says that he has come to set mother against daughter and father against son. It's kind of backwards, isn't it? No, I need to start treading lightly um, because this Saturday, my own brother will be married and 
This is them. Aren't they cute? I know. They haven't been here a whole, whole lot recently, but I'm looking forward to having them around here more frequently. And, um, hey, Matthew, you're not really my brother, is what Jesus is saying, right? (laughs) You're not going to kick me off of standing next to you, are you? (laughs) Not one bit. But it's this. It's not the blood that primarily makes us brothers. But there's so much more when you're when you're shackled to the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the spiritual bloodline through his blood that connects us. That's what Jesus is trying to draw home here, that there's something that is more powerful and more beautiful than physical bloodlines, and it's the spiritual. Okay. There's two truths I think that Jesus is, is trying to drive home here. Again, the first is to hear and to do. That Jesus is emphasizing the same point that he was emphasizing in the parable of the sowers and in the lamp. When you receive the word of God, when you put it into practice, when you share it, when you put it on display, when you allow it to enter in and to cause change in you, Jesus is saying, you hear it and you do it. You're part of my spiritual family. And that is also the second point. He has an opportunity, a beautiful one, I might add, to teach us. And this is one of the most central truths of the Bible, Christian, that those who hear and do the the will of God are actually Jesus's family. Wow. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. That Jesus, that God himself would choose to put a mere human who's on this earth for what? Seven decades? Into his own family. You see, consider um, uh, Buddhism. It's kind of like this weird religion. Or consider Islam with with or consider Hinduism, which you can appease whichever God you need to appease. But in Christianity, conversion's absolutely different. It's not some sort of transactional conversion. But no, it's more than becoming a convert. It's being grafted into the family with Jesus Christ. Saved at the moment that you're saved by grace through faith, Christian, You are adopted into the great forever family of God. The Bible calls that adoption. It's near and dear to the heart of God. That's why those of you who are working with the foster care community here and and working on a network is such important work because foster and adoption and caring for orphans is so near and dear to the heart of God. Those who love him and whom he has called are part of his family. We are adopted. That's the biblical word. Ephesians 1.5, listen to this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And listen to this. Oh, this is beautiful, church. Romans 8, where we will become, or we do become God's children, literally God's children through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Just let this pour over you, Christian, as an encouragement. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and catch this, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That we're led by the Spirit of those led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We see the spirit of adoption as sons, be children of God, and if children, then heirs. Friends, when you are part of the great forever family of God, you just obey him because it's your delight to obey the Father whom you love. That's what it means to hear his word and to do it, by the way. They must come together. The hearing and the doing must come together when you are part of his family. And may I remind you, Christian, that no matter the cost, the pain, the joy, you ought to obey him when the persecution just keeps persisting or the suffering comes up and surfaces or even when your family may forbid you, you obey your heavenly father. Some of you know what I mean. You might be the only Christian in your family, and they have no idea why on earth you get up early on a Sunday morning. They just don't get it. Or why you give hard-earned money. Or why you take 20 hours this past week to serve its VBS. They just don't get it. But you do. Because you're part of a bigger family, a a a closer-knit family, the spiritual family of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think a missionary sometimes too, particularly those with unbelieving family. Say, why on earth would you leave here and go to some God-forsaken place? That's quite literally because it is a God-forsaken place, is it not? And that the Lord is calling people from all over the place to be part of his perfect and forever family. That's why you go. That the spiritual family bonds are so much tighter than even the close bonds that we have with one another. And that even when family may, in a sense, forbid, we have one to whom we must obey. So on this note, parents, if I may tread at least somewhat lightly, just consider, have you put up barriers that may prevent your children from engaging with the call of the Lord? Have you even in a simple manner made comments like, oh, you won't do that, or don't do this, or you can't do that? Putting up barriers to allowing them to obey the call of the Lord? Now, of course, we want everyone close. I stayed close. But have we? Just be thoughtful as we're raising up children here. There's a whole slew of them, aren't there? So we're just raising them. That we do not step into the position of God to say, you must fill in the blank. 
And church, just an encouragement. We can, in a sense, be closer to Jesus than his own mother and brothers, at least in a physical sense. John 20, 17, listen to this. Right after Jesus rose from the dead and he tells the ladies at the tomb, he says, go and tell my disciples, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Indeed, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So one other moment of application before we press on. Do you love the family of God? Do you love your brothers and sisters around you? Of, of course we do. But how would we consider testing that out? Well, we spend time with the people we love. We sacrifice for them. We, we serve them. Here's, here's another example. Some of you know I was a recruiter for a period. People will move all the time for a job. People will move for weather, for a warmer climate. But why is it that people never move to be part of a more faithful family, to be part of a church? Interesting to think about. Um, Another example is, is this. As we think about prioritizing God's family, this past week was VBS. Five, six dozen volunteers descended on this place. And we're so grateful for Allison and, and spearheading that. Allison, prioritizing what it looks like to teach children the truth of the scriptures and to have how many dozens doing the same. But um, this is fun. Zeb and I were um, in charge of games this past week. I got a lot of fodder, let me just tell you that much. And uh, just to, what does it look like to prioritize spiritual family? There's Zeb. Friends, this is your pastor, by the way. Putting aside whatever personal, I don't even know, I'm not going to use the word respect, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Putting aside whatever most people might think a pastor should do in teaching or doing, or being duck in a study and there he is with a shoe of about a five-year-old I don't know if it's rainbow or pink and the kids had to find their shoes and I turn around he has one on his head just having fun and sacrificing for little ones here's a here's one where this video is is a fun one um, just prioritizing and oh there goes honesty oh <laughs> now now catch this Isn't that great? Logan, may we watch it just one more time? She nails him, and he, he doesn't miss a beat. <laughs> and, uh, and we got one other picture here of, of, of James playing tug-of-war with elementary kids. Look at this. Look at the smile on his face. I'm, I decided not to show the video where he lost to the elementary kids. Um, but... Here's the point. Prioritizing the family of faith looks a whole lot of different ways. Sometimes it's playing tug-of-war with a bunch of little kids. Sometimes it's taking the hit 
with a bucket of water with a big grin on your face or giving high fives to little ones. And sometimes it's, it's just a whole lot of different things. I think of Dee and Nancy who've just been caring for people here in the body so well and giving of their own time and resources to care for one another. I think of Julie, he's prepared six VBS meals, I don't know how many snacks, and two funeral dinners in six days. It looks a whole lot of different ways, but prioritizing, if indeed we are willing, especially as Americans, to prioritize our own earthly families, how much more are we to prioritize our spiritual family? Because Jesus is bottom lining it. Those who hear and do the will of his father, who hear and do his word, are his mother and his brothers. That takes us to verse 22. Most of us are familiar with this big storm. We saw one last night, didn't we? And um, sometimes we're reminded that many of the guys, these disciples are sitting there on that boat. Many of them knew the water well as fishermen, particularly that sea. And um, some of you have heard, I don't know how the geography lays, these kind of windstorms or these squalls were not uncommon there on the Sea of Galilee. But this one in particular was worrisome. A windstorm comes, the disciples are in danger. I don't know how sometimes we just like gloss over that. Verse 23, they were filling with water and were in danger. How do we just read that flatly? (laughs) This is a storm of storms. And Jesus slept. He must have been exhausted, I'm sure, from his, his ministry. Yet he was human, after all. And as they're there in danger, they look to him and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. So they're t- filling on water. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat when like water's coming in, but you're like, Ooh. They're filling on. And Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the winds and the waves and they obey. And then I imagine he turned, but he looks to his disciples and he either rebukes them or corrects them or teaches them. I'm not sure exactly the right word. The Bible doesn't tell us, but he turns to his disciples right then and says, where is your faith? You know, maybe they thought he didn't care. Maybe thought he was unable. Maybe they just thought, like some of us, you can just sleep through anything. Um, But where is your faith? I remember a time in college, it was brief. By God's grace, it was less than 24 hours when I just had like this void. I'm like, "I I just feel like I'm floating. I was sitting down with breakfast one morning. As we were talking, I said, I think I've forgotten who God is. And the remedy for that. So, Christian, if you feel like you're just floating, to go and read what Bill read for us earlier. Job 38, 39, 40. When Job, who through all this turmoil, when everything was taken from him, and he's there in dust and ashes and boils and cuts, God turns to Job 
in Job 38. And he questions Job. God Almighty turns, and just listen, pretend like God is saying this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it? and set bars and doors, and said, thus shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. I will question you. Oh, how overwhelming that must have been. And in a similar way, like the disciples were going through a storm, we all have storms are in lives, we all have difficulties, we all have hard things. But let me point you to, to one truth that we see here. Did the storm that the disciples faced surprise God? The answer is in the text. It's in verse 22. No, it didn't. Jesus himself told them to get in the boat and to go across the lake. God initiated this entire circumstance he did not have to be reactive to it. It was a proactive plan. And so again, friend, may I remind you that when the storms come, who are you to question? It's not some sort of reactive thing, but God is still just as large and in charge when the storms in my life come. And when the storms in your life come, who are we to question? God uses these to test our faith and to train us in righteousness and to grow us and to refine us. That's the whole purpose of the book of 1 Peter, is it not? But remember that God puts this storm, I believe here, right after the, the, the mother and the brothers, right after the lamp, to emphasize the most important question that we can ever be presented and it's the one that the disciples accurately ask. Who is this, then, that even the winds and the waves obey? You know, after all, humans, we try to control just about anything and everything, haven't we? And we can control just about anything and everything, but you try controlling the weather. Like, if you could have gotten a big fan to blow away all the, the Canadian wildfire this week, I'd have paid you 20 bucks or more. But we can't control the weather. Who then? is this, that even the weather obeys. We'll come back to that in one moment. But for those of you who have been adopted into this forever family of God, remember this. He has promised, just like he was in the boat with the disciples, he has promised that he will never leave us and that he will never forsake us. True storms, storms, difficulties, no matter how great they may be, will never, as Zeb told us last week, will never shipwreck true faith. 
He's not duty-bound to calm the storm like we read today. But he uses them, does he not? And just remember, if you are his, he is there with you. And no matter how big or difficult it is or dark, it will never shipwreck true faith. Secondly, some say that this passage is that the Lord will calm the storm in your life. And while he can do that, and he does do that, um, it's far greater. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this then? Who is this Jesus? Who is this man, the disciples ask, which is rather fascinating because they'd seen him heal at least one paralytic. They'd seen him cast out demons from multiple people by this point. And they'd also seen him like bring a dead man back to life. You remember when Jesus touched the beer or the coffin and the whoop, dead man sat up? They'd seen that and they still ask, who is this? Well, It's that very Jesus, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, the one who sustains all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who it is. And so when we we must ask that question, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? Is this Jesus? The one who is ushering everything for his glory. The one who whatever storm in your life will carry you through, Christian. The one who has said, you're part of his family if you hear his word and if you do his word. So as we wrap up now with just a a brief word of application. Saw that these disciples were in danger. We are perishing is the word they use. Be honest. Do I really trust God with the difficulties in my life? Fourth of July is in two days. A lot of folks are or we're just torn asunder with the difficulties, the wickedness in our country. Do I spend more time complaining or consuming what's going on or bringing it before him? Do I spend more time perseverating or or just thinking about issues at work or within my family? Or am I focused on getting as many extra shifts, which is not inherently wrong, but it is if it's taken my trust out of the one who's marshalling it all for his glory anyway. If you're in a storm, what do you think the Lord's trying to teach you as he seeks to test your faith, the genuineness of it? And lastly, if you're not currently experiencing the difficulty of a, of a storm, this concept of pre-praying has been new to me, but I think it's biblical. Pray now. Pray that when these things arise in our lives, that we will continue to be faithful to hear and to do his word. Let's pray together. Lord, may we be a people who hear your word, who do your word, that the onlooking world will see the light of Christ in this family of believers. And Lord, may we hold fast to the hope that those of us who trust you, 
are part of your family. We have literally been adopted into your family. Lord, may we prioritize heavenly citizenship, heavenly family relationships. And Lord, may we always remember that no matter the storm of life, that you are there in and through and around. You're there caring for your children. May we trust you. May we trust you. In our precious Savior's name, in our elder brother's name, in our Lord's name, we pray. Amen.